0: couple of months, uh, we've been working through systematically uh, the Apostles' Creed, right? One of the oldest, probably the oldest, uh, creed statement of beliefs in the church dating back to the second century AD, right? So for uh, the better part of 1800 years, Christians across generations and denominations and nations and languages and times have been reciting this creed as a statement of belief for what Christians ground their faith in. Right? So if you want to know what Christians believe and I don't know maybe you're here and you're just exploring the faith or you're online and you're exploring the faith. You're just kind of maybe somebody invited you or you just stumbled upon our feed online or whatever it is. If you want to know what the Christian faith is all about, the Apostles' Creed is a wonderful starting place. As I've said throughout this series, it's a beautiful sort of summary an encapsulation of the entire biblical narrative so again you want to know what do christians believe the apostles creed is a wonderful place to start and so when we as followers of jesus recite this creed together as generations of christians have for centuries and centuries we are on the one hand affirming that we believe these things as followers of jesus right so we're saying Hey, listen, I believe these things, I'm staking my life and my eternity on these things, so, so we're affirming what we believe, but on the, on the same hand, we're also rejecting uh, all these other cultural narratives and worldviews out there that are competing for our hearts and our minds, right? So we're both affirming what we believe while also rejecting false gospels and false narratives that are clamoring for our hearts and our attention in our culture, Now, we have been uh, reciting the creed through this series at the end of the service, but we're going to mix it up today, and we're going to recite the creed uh, together on the front end of the service, so I want to invite you to go ahead and stand with me. We're going to recite the creed together um, as a faith family, and uh, as always, if you're here, uh, you're you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, don't feel in any way pressured or compelled to participate. You can just kind of watch us, but if you do believe uh, in Christ, you're a follower of Jesus, uh, say this with me on the count of three, one, two, three. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. All right, last week, uh, Joe Dillon, my dad, you you guys can grab a seat, um, preached on the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's power and presence. Now, the Holy Spirit... Um, As we talked about last week, it's not an afterthought in the Christian life. He's not a sideshow for the the crazy Pentecostals down the road. He is essential to the life of every Christian in every church ever, right? And so it's no coincidence, I I don't think, that the writers of the creed follow the line about the Holy Spirit with the line about the church, because it's the Holy Spirit who actually gives birth to the church. We read that in Acts chapter 2, right, the day of Pentecost. You may be familiar with that. The Holy Spirit shows up, right, empowers these believers. The Apostle Peter, right, one of the disciples, one of Jesus' three closest friends, who just 40 days prior was such a coward that he denied Jesus three times the night before Jesus went to the cross. He now uh, receives the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. He stands up and boldly preaches the gospel of Jesus. 3,000 people are saved after his first sermon, and the church is born. Right, guys, listen, the Holy Spirit changes everything. That's one reason why you'll notice here at New Life, we rarely speak of God generically. Right? We speak a lot about God the Father. We speak about the Son, Jesus. We speak about the Holy Spirit, and that's on purpose, Because we believe that to to really grasp the triune nature of the biblical God, we have to understand those things about who he is in order to experience all that he has for us as followers of Jesus in this life. And so here's our line for today. This will be on the screens for you. Actually, uh, two lines. We're going to do two lines today. So two for one special. You're welcome. On the screens, I believe in the Holy Christian Church and the communion of the saints. Now, the New Testament uh, says a lot about the church. There's no way that we really can unpack everything that the Bible says about the church, Um, so we're just going to kind of hit the highlights, and then you can go deeper uh, in in your own uh, time together with the Lord throughout the week. But uh, the the Holy Spirit, as we just said in Acts chapter 2, gives birth to the church. And if that's true, and I think it is, and if Jesus died for the church, which he claims that he did, and if he calls the church his very bride, which he does, the question for us then is as modern day followers of Jesus how how important should the church be to us should it, should it be sort of a an add on a tack on like a thing that we do when uh, not, nothing else is uh, is pressing on our time should it should it be a kind of medium priority level for us should it be a high priority level can we live with it live without it you know what, how, how should we think about the church as modern day followers of Jesus I think we've I, I would imagine all of us have heard some kind of Comment like, and, and in fact, many of us have probably made comments like this. Um, we, but for sure, we've all heard things like, Hey, listen, I, I, I like Jesus, I'm into Jesus, I just don't care for the church. Right? So, m- most of us have probably heard things like that, or Hey, listen, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I, thanks for the invite, Chris, but I, I'm, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious, and so I, I don't need the church. Or, how about this one? Uh, my, my church is in the woods. Or at the lake, or on the golf course, or in the tree stand, I, I feel uh, close to God in nature. We've all heard again heard those statements. Many of us have made those statements ourselves. And frankly, if I'm being honest, like I get it, like I get the sentiment behind all of those comments. Because the reality is, I also feel really close to God in nature. Like I, I love being out in nature, experiencing His beauty of the the creation that He made. Like it makes me feel close to him. And the reality is, at least in my experience, many of the people, if not most of the people who make comments like that have been the most wounded and injured in a church. Now, now here's here's the reality, because I I never want to sugarcoat things for you. I never want to mislead you or, or lie to you. Here's the reality. Church can be a really messy, dysfunctional place at times, can't it? It just can be. In fact, if you stay in church long enough, here's what I can guarantee you. If you stay long enough, somebody's going to hurt your feelings. Promise. Somebody's going to step on your toes. Somebody's going to offend you, irritate you, annoy you, maybe all at the same time, and good chance it's me. All right? Good chance maybe it's you doing that to me too. All right? That's just the reality of it. And so it's really easy in our context and culture to cast stones at the church, isn't it? With all of her imperfections and warts and failures, and yet... What this part of the creed, this line of the creed attempts to answer for us is, what is the church and why does it matter? So that's what we're going to try to do uh, together uh, this morning. So let me give you the big idea of the entire message on the front end and then we'll, we'll dig in. Here's the big idea on the screens for you. The church is not an afterthought in the Christian life. The church is central to the Christian life. Now, that's a big claim, and I'm going to do my best to back it up. If you have a Bible, go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, that's where we'll start together. As you find your place there, uh, let me pause and just ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we we come to you, and I think most of us would just have to, if we we're being honest, confess that uh, we come in here with a lot of distractions, with a lot of things tugging on our thoughts and our minds and our hearts, things that are going on perhaps in our families and with our friends and maybe health issues, financial concerns, uh, whatever it is, God. We've all got things that we drag in here uh, every single Sunday morning. And yet, Father, I pray that you would somehow supernaturally by the power of your spirit allow us to lay those things aside just for a moment, just for the next 30, 35 minutes so that we could hear a word from you in a way that would actually help us uh, walk out of here changed people for your glory, God. And so would you... Send your Holy Spirit, Father, to be here with us uh, in this place to illuminate our minds, to open our ears, to open our eyes. And then would you help us apply these ancient truths and these ancient scriptures uh, to our own hearts and our own lives in a way that make a difference in the world around us and in our own lives. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Matthew chapter 16, uh, on the screens for you if you don't have a Bible, starting in verse 13. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? In other words, what's the word on the street, boys? What are are people saying about me? And they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, come back from the the dead, because John the Baptist had already been executed at this point. Some say you're John the Baptist, returned from the dead. Others say Elijah, come back from the dead. Others say Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. And then Jesus kind of stops him in verse 15. He said, yeah, but... But who do you say that I am? And I think a fair question for all of us in the room watching online to ask this very morning, who do you say that Jesus is? Now, I love Peter's answer. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, right? Now, we're going to hone in on verse 18. This is, this is a beautiful promise. I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What's it? The church. Now, I have to tell you, there's been some controversy throughout the centuries about uh, what Jesus is saying here, about what this rock is that Jesus is going to build his church on. So, like, for instance, our Roman Catholic friends would say that Peter is the rock that Jesus was going to build a church on, right? So they would use this verse to say, well, Peter was the first pope, and then there's been a succession of popes throughout the century because Jesus said, you, Peter, are the rock that I'm going to build a church on. We as Protestants, on the other hand, would lovingly say to our Catholic friends, uh, wrong. That's not what, he's, not what he's saying at all. In fact, Jesus, I think, is saying one of two things there. Uh, this is actually a play on word, right? If you read it in the Greek... Uh, Peter's name is, is Petros, which means little rock or little stone. So he's saying, Petros, little stone, on this rock, different Greek word, I'm going to build my church. So Jesus either was saying, hey, on Peter, on uh, your confession, I'm going to build on my church on this rock. He's either pointing at himself, or I think more than likely, what he was saying is, your confession, Peter. Your confession that I'm the Christ... That I'm the son of the living God. In other words, on the gospel, that is the rock upon which I will be building my church. Right. This is this is a beautiful promise. Verse 19, and, and again, this is an incredible promise. I don't even uh, I can't even begin to unpack the implications of what Jesus says in 19. So I'm, I'm just going to embrace it, and there's going to be some mystery there. He says, "I will give you who the, 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 all believers, right, the the church, the keys of the kingdom of heaven." And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Again, I don't understand how to unpack all of what Jesus just said. There's some some mystery there. But what I do know clearly that Jesus said is I'm going to be giving some sort of spiritual authority to my church. Okay? Now, that, that again, that's big. We could probably spend a couple weeks trying to unpack all of what that means. But this is a huge promise. Now, also, don't, don't miss this. Jesus only ever promised that one thing in the entire universe would never be conquered by the gates of death and hell. And guess what it was? The church. You know what it wasn't? A political party. He didn't say, hey, guys, I'm going to build my rock on the Republican Party, on the Democratic Party, and the gates of hell will not prevail against that political party. That's not what he said. That was not the promise. You know what else it wasn't? A cultural movement, whatever that cultural movement is. That's not going to be the savior of the world. It wasn't even a nation like I, like this one nation is gonna be the savior of the world. It wasn't even individual Christians. The only thing Jesus ever promised would n- never conquer, or the gates of of hell would never conquer, is the church, the bride of Jesus. So so what is the church? I think we have to define the terms before we can understand the implications. The word that Jesus is, Jesus uses there, Matthew chapter sixteen, really fascinating, the Greek word for church is, is actually ekklesia, which is derived from, from two Greek words. It's a compound word. The Greek word ek, which means out of, and the Greek word ekklesia means called out ones. So the church, according to Jesus, literally means that the church is people who are called out of the world and formed into a new family on mission with Jesus. That's what, that's what the church is. Now, I, I love J.I. Packer's definition of the church. will be on the screens for you. Packer uh, says this, the church is the supernatural society of God's redeemed people. Isn't that great? The church is the supernatural society of God's redeemed people. I wish I would have thought of that, but Packer beat me to the punch. That's a great definition. Now the scripture speaks of the church in two broad categories. So one category when you read the scriptures, you need to be aware of this, now sometimes it speaks of the church as a, as a universal entity, the universal church. Other times you read the church in the New Testament is talking about the local church. They're both important. So what are they? The universal church is all believers from all times and all places. Every Christian past, present, and future is part of the universal church. But the Bible also speaks very clearly about the local church. right? The local church is a specific group of people who gather at a particular time and place, like New Life Community Church in Asheville, North Carolina in the year 2022 to pursue Jesus together and live on mission with him. Right? The local church is a spiritual family. One of the things we say here oftentimes is uh, we're not like family here. We are family. right? We are truly a spiritual family in God's economy. And this is, by the way, I think, one of the greatest benefits of becoming a Christian. Right? Outside of being made right with your creator, right? having a right relationship with God the Father through Jesus, and outside of having your eternal destiny secured through the work of Jesus, man, we get this entire Brand new spiritual family called the church, and it's awesome and messy and beautiful and frustrating and annoying and life giving all of those things at the same time. Like any family, like that, that's who we are, that's what we are at New Life. We are a local expression of the universal church. Now, some of you, I know you grew up. Reciting the Creed, especially those of you who grew up in high church tradition, so many of you have come from Catholic backgrounds, Lutheran, Anglican, Methodist, in fact, I'm convinced about 70% of New Lifers come from high church backgrounds, so I'm still a bit confused as to why you're here, and I, you just come, and I yell at you every week, and you keep coming back, but I'm glad that you're here. Now, now, for those of you who are from one of those high church backgrounds, you noticed immediately, week one, that I changed a word in the Creed, didn't you? Some of, you, some of you came up to me after the first week, some of you have emailed me, and I've been telling you, just wait, we'll get, we'll get to it, right? That word that I changed in the creed is in today's line. Many of you grew up reciting the creed with this line reading like this, I believe in the holy Catholic church. Now, I've changed that, uh, as some Protestant churches have, to I believe in the holy Christian church. Now, now here's why, because that's been the question. Well, Chris, why did you change that one word? Here's why. The word Catholic, when the Creed was first translated a few centuries ago into English, back then, the word Catholic in the English language was used synonymously and understood uh, as the word universal. So back then, 300 years ago, when we first translated it into English, right, the, the Holy Catholic Church just meant Holy Universal Church, and everybody would have understood that 300 years ago because, again, those two words were used synonymously. However, in our day and age, the word Catholic in modern times has become associated almost exclusively with the Roman Catholic Church, and this Baptist boy just couldn't have that, so I changed the name, right? Which, I, again, I think, again, is, is why the, this particular part of the creed has become confusing to a lot of Christians, right? Because you it's kind of like you're saved, you come to a church like this, you're like, man, we're finally in this uh, life-giving, vibrant church, and and... And then, yet here we are quoting about the Roman Catholic Church. Like, how does that make sense? So it's it's brought a lot of confusion to the creed, I think. So in order to return the creed to its original meaning, and I think more accurate meaning, we've changed the word Catholic to Christian. In any case, it just means universal. That's what that word means, right? We're talking about the universal church. All believers, past, present, future, are part of this big, beautifully dysfunctional, life-giving, hope-of-the-world family of Jesus. And so what are the marks of a true biblical church? Now we could spend a few weeks unpacking that. I think we probably could boil it down to maybe seven or eight. We don't have time to do that this morning. And so what I want to do is, is just give you three from these two lines in the creed. right? and we'll spend the rest of our time unpacking those uh, those three kind of marks of an authentic New Testament church. Now now here's why I want to do that. I think even in the church, even in the Christian world today, in modern day America, there's a lot of confusion about what the church is and what the church is not. Have you noticed that? You talk to a lot of Christians, maybe in your neighborhood, your workplace, your school place, there's a lot of opinions about what the church is, what the church isn't, what she should be doing, what she ought not be doing, all these kinds of opinions. So let me start by telling you what the church isn't. I think maybe that'll help us set a foundation before we talk about what it is. The church isn't, number one, an event. The church is not an event. There seems to be a a lot of folk out there that go to church, they're under the impression that church is a one-hour event that happens on Sunday morning. Now, listen, don't mishear me. What we're doing right now is important. Right? The, the corporate gathering of the saints on Sunday morning, on the Lord's Day, for worship and word, I, I believe with all my heart, crucial to your spiritual growth. Crucial to my spiritual growth. And, by the way, commanded in Scripture for all believers. Hebrews chapter 10. Don't forsake the assembling of the believers as some habitually do, but even more as you see the day drawing near, gather to encourage one another. So we're encouraged as believers not to forsake the Sunday morning worship and word uh, gathering. But church is not an event. Ultimately, as Jesus says, church is a a people, it's a family on mission with Jesus. See, our Sunday morning gatherings really are meant to serve as a, a, a launch pad, as it were, into all of us being the church. Monday through Saturday in the places where we live, work, play, go to school. And really what this, this one-hour event, one-hour and 15-minute event, is designed to do is it, it, really allow us to come together and celebrate all that God has done in us and through us over the last week and also encourage one another to keep running the race hard after Jesus as we begin a new, lay, new a new week. All right, so this, this really should be a launch pad, not the end game, right? Church is not an event. So if you think of church as an event, please try, try to discipline your mind to think of it um, as a people, as a family, not as a one-hour event. Here's the second thing a church is not. It's not a building. And I think we have to be careful even in uh, the way that we articulate church. And I'm guilty of this as well. But, but listen, church, church is not a building. The reality is, uh, man, I love our campus. a beautiful campus. I'm grateful for this uh, church building that we're sitting in, standing in right now. But this building could burn to the ground tonight and New Life Community Church would no less be the church than we were before. Now, we obviously we'd have to get creative. We'd have to go rent out a movie theater or a school lunchroom or something like that. But we would be the same church. Why? Because the church is not a building. It's not a place. It's a family, right? It's a spiritual family. And so I think we should be uh, even careful in how we talk about the church. And so uh, I'm trying to be careful in how I even talk to my kids about the church because at times I'm guilty, probably as you are, of saying, hey, let's go to church tomorrow, Sunday morning. Let's go go to church as if it were a building or a place. And so I'm trying to discipline my, my own mind and train my own mind to say, hey, listen, let's go to the church campus, or let's go worship with our faith family tomorrow on Sunday. So even the way that we articulate and talk about church, I think it actually matters, right? Church is not an event. Church is not a building. So what are the marks of a true church? And again, I think our line today gives us at least three marks of a true church. We're going to work through those. And then I want to finish our time by issuing a challenge to everybody in the room, right? So a challenge, everybody in the room, everybody watching online, and then we'll then we'll be done, all right? Number one, When the creed says, I believe in the church, you will notice that's singular, isn't it? The the creed does not say, I believe in churches, plural. It says, the church. Matthew 16, Jesus says the same thing. I will build my church, singular. Now guys, here's what's going on here. This is the idea, I think, that the early writers in the church, Jesus himself, trying to communicate this idea of oneness of unity in the family of Jesus, right? That's the first mark of a true church's oneness. I want you to watch what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4 on the screens for you. Paul writes this to a church in a city called Ephesus. He says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, Christians, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What's that look like, Paul? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, Eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now listen, in this short passage, the Apostle Paul seven times uses the word one to describe the church. Why is that, do you think? Did you notice it? One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God the Father. I think Paul is communicating. He's, he's screaming at us through repetition, listen guys, this is important. Like this, this crazy, beautifully at times dysfunctional family of Jesus called the church, it's gotta be marked by unity above all else. Now listen, you, you and I both know that this is true. Every single family out there has at least one crazy family member, when they show up to the family gathering, everybody cringes, right? You got that person, I got that person, right? Thanksgiving rolls around, that dude walks in, everybody's just like, oh, what's he gonna say? Is he gonna get political? What's, what's gonna happen? We've all got the crazy uncle. As, you, as I've said before, if you're thinking, well, Chris, that's your family, man, I can't really think of anybody in my family, that's because it's you, right? You're the crazy uncle, you're the batty aunt, and that's okay. Um, because the the, the, real, the reality is this, You may be the crazy uncle in this church. You may be the batty aunt in this church. The reality is we probably got more than a few, but you know what? At the end of the day, you're my crazy uncle. And you're our our batty aunt. You're a part of the family, right? And and I was kind of thinking about this, processing this concept this week. The example that I thought of in my own life was um, when I I grew up, I don't know, you maybe had siblings, maybe you didn't. I had one sibling growing up. So I had one sister. uh, She was two years younger than me, and bless my parents, man, we would, we would fight like cats and dogs, right? I can't remember how many times my dad would have to pull over the car in the highway because we were just going at each other constantly, right? So we would fight like cats and dogs, but let somebody else mess with my little sister, hell to pay, right? Because the reality was she might have been an annoying little sister, but she was my annoying little sister, right? And I would go to the wall for her. Now, now listen, church family, we're going to have our differences, Right, I said unity, not uniformity. We're going to have our differences. We're going to disagree on secondary issues like end times theology, for instance, and that's okay. We're going to disagree on things like how to flesh out God's sovereignty and human free will in salvation. We're going to disagree on, on whether we should take God's good gift of coffee and pollute it with things like pumpkin spice or not. And that's okay. We can have those secondary discussions. We can disagree, but we're going to get up in this church and we're going to hug each other. We're going to be marked by unity. Why? Because Jesus says we're family and it matters. So let let me just encourage you, friend. Part of being a, a, a part of the family of Jesus, the church, is fighting for unity with each other. That's what it means to be, at least in part, to be a part of the body of Christ. It means we fight for unity. So let me just pause for a moment and ask you a question. Dear friend, online, in the room, is there a broken or strained relationship that you have right now with someone in the body? Either this body or another church body? Like, is there somebody that just comes to your mind right now and when you see their face or hear their name, it's like, it just kind of raises up this thing in your heart. You're like, ah, you know, either anger or hurt, or frustration. Maybe you're at the 11 o'clock because you know they come to the 9 o'clock, you know, whatever it is. If that's you, I just want to encourage you, listen, guys, make it right this week. Make it, not next month, not six months from now, not next year when when your emotions subside. Make it right this week. Whether they're in this church family or another church family, man, pick up that phone, Don't be a coward. Write that text message. Set up that coffee appointment. Jesus, in John chapter 17, his high priestly prayer, right before he goes to the cross, he prayed for his 12 disciples. He also prayed for his future disciples. By the way, that's you, that's me. You want want to know what the number one thing he prayed for his disciples then and now it was for? He specifically prayed that the Father would make us one. That we would fight for unity with one another. So that's the first mark of a true, authentic church of Jesus. Number one is a true church really prioritizes unity. right? We, we, we fight for it. It's not something that's secondary. We're like, ah, if it happens, and then cool, great. If it doesn't happen, oh, well, we live in a fallen world. We'll just move on with life. No, no, no. We fight for unity. We prioritize unity in the body of Jesus. The second mark of a true church that we get from this particular line in the Creed is not only are we united, we are also in the process, not perfectly but we're in the process of pursuing holiness as a people, as a family. The second mark of an authentic church is we pursue holiness together. Now, I realize that word holy can feel kind of like churchy and overly spiritual and scary and like what does that even mean to kind of get the idea of holier than thou and like super judgmental and we don't like that. Here, if that's where you're at, it kind of, kind of hits you the wrong way, that word Holy. Uh, you should know this, the word holy, all that means is to be set apart, to be set apart. It doesn't mean that we're perfect, it doesn't mean that we're sinless, it doesn't mean that we're flawless in our faith journey. I mean, my goodness, I think we've, most of us have been in enough churches to know that we're all pretty messed up in one way or the other, right? And in, in some ways, some real way, I think the fact that no perfect church exists this side of eternity should actually be kind of a relief for us. Right? Because if there were a perfect church, and then we were to find a perfect church and join it, we'd be the ones that messed it all up. right? Then everybody would look at us and point, you. right? We had it going on, and then you showed up. right? So it's probably a good thing that there is no perfect church on this side of eternity. It reminds, reminds me of a story I heard of a, a pastor in the 1800s. I cannot remember if it's Spurgeon or somebody else. Somebody will probably tell me after the, the sermon. But a story of a pastor in the 1800s, and I think he was on a streetcar in London, and sitting next to this lady, and he, he invites this lady to come to church. Right. It's like, hey, man, we'd love to have you join us on on Sunday morning at our church, and she responded, "No, no, thanks. the The church is full of hypocrites." To which the pastor smiled and responded, "Man, we have room for just one more. We, we got room. We got we only got one open seat for another hypocrite. and It's got your name on it, yeah. right? the The water is warm. Come on in, sister. Right. And another way we might package the concept of holiness, maybe in a more modern way or easier to understand way, is that the church is to be countercultural right i think we all understand that concept the church is to be countercultural right to be holy is to be countercultural right as a people of jesus and what i mean by that as the people of jesus we do not adopt the cultural value systems of the world around us listen church family we are going to embrace culturally unpopular positions on everything from marriage and sexuality to financial generosity, to how we parent our kids, to how we love our spouses. Listen, young person, high schooler, college student, young professional, the world is going to think you're mad when you choose not to cohabitate with your boyfriend or your girlfriend before marriage. I'm just, uh, like I, I've talked to enough of you who are in that season of life. I know there's cultural pressure there. Even from parents or friends at church. Like, man, why would you, why would you pay for two rents? When you can live together and save money, I mean, y'all love each other, right? You're going to get married like in a year or two years or whenever it is. So it, it, it's all good. Like the world is going to see your value system and think that you are insane. The world's going to call you intolerant and bigoted, right? When you embrace God's view of gender, which has become like a hot button thing in our culture now, right? That the creative order in Genesis of two genders man and woman, boy and girl, two, not 200 this is not a restrictive. This is actually God's good design For human flourishing Like, Like God's not trying to punish you God's trying to free you To live the design that he has for your life He's not an angry God He's a good God When you choose to invest Some percentage of your income Into God's kingdom Instead of driving a newer car Or taking that extra vacation to Europe People will think you've lost your ever loving mind Like, why would you sacrifice those things to help people that you're never going to meet in your life? People are going to question your sanity, moms and dads, families, when you decide to pursue adoption or foster care. Like, man, don't you know how hard that is? Don't you know how expensive that is? Listen, guys, the world will look at our value system as the people of Jesus, and they will go, that's weird. And you're weird. And you know what, church family? That's okay. You want to know why? Because the people of Jesus have always, from the word go, right out of the gate, been a countercultural people. From the beginning, we've been a peculiar people. I love this one historical account of the early Christians. It was written around 130 A.D., so very close to the launch of the church, about these brand new weird people called Christians, right? And I've shared this before, but I think it's a beautiful description of who believers are and how they live a life that is countercultural to the world around them. So this is what uh, this, uh, this says here. They dwell, they're talking about the Christians, the early Christians, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. So they, they hold loosely to life, right? They're not, they're not clinging to material possessions. As citizens, they share in all things. So there's this idea of generosity, not being selfish and hoarding things for yourself, but this idea of, of generosity, of caring, of sharing with other people, and yet they endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Right. So even then, that was a weird cultural value that we, as followers of Jesus, value human life from womb to tomb. Right? That was weird then, it's weird now. They have a, I love this line. They have a common table, so they practice hospitality. They have a common table, but not a common bed. Now, the Christians have a different sexual ethic than the culture around them, and that was seen as weird 2,000 years ago. It's seen as weird today. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they're citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws with their lives. In other words, the Christians are good citizens. They're the people you want working for you if you're a small business owner. They're the people you want living in your neighborhoods. They're honest. They're hardworking. They're citizens. They obey, obey the laws and even surpass the laws. They love all and are persecuted by all because the world doesn't get their value system. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are reviled, and yet they bless. Right? We don't When people don't get us, as the culture is not going to get us, they persecute us and marginalize us and label us as bigots or whatever it is. We don't don't get mad. We don't retaliate, right? As the early Christians, when we're reviled, we we bless in return. We, We love them in return. When the Christians, when they do good, they are punished as evildoers, undergoing punishment, they rejoice because they are brought to life. Church, we have always been a peculiar people. Now, I would make this argument. What makes us attractive to the world around us, and cult- by the way, cultural refugees, and I think we're going to see more of that coming in the years and decades ahead, cultural refugees who have tried everything that the world says will make them happy and found it wanting. I think the thing that makes us attractive to cultural refugees is that the church offers a countercultural alternative to the world. What makes us attractive to those whom the Spirit is calling out of the world is precisely that we are unlike the world, not like the world. Which makes it all the more ironic that so many churches and denominations in our country today are attempting to become more like the world to reach the world. And yet what we see statistically across the board is that all those churches and all those denominations that are trying to become more like the world in order to reach the world, they are dying at increasingly fast rates while churches and denominations that embrace countercultural, orthodox, historical Christianity are thriving and in many cases even growing. And so we're weird. So what? That's okay that we don't share the value system of the world around us, that our friends aren't going to get us, that our neighbors aren't going to get us, that our coworkers aren't going to invite us to the party at the bar or whatever it is. We're weird. Most of you were weird anyway before you got saved, so you just, just embrace the weirdness. We've been a peculiar people for 2,000 years. 2,000 years from now, if the Lord tarries, we'll still be a peculiar people. We are countercultural because we are pursuing, as Paul said to the Ephesian church, we're pursuing holiness together as a faith family. The third mark, last mark, of a true church that we see from this line in the creed is that, that the true church is a family on mission. Not just a family, a family with a purpose. Look at First Peter chapter two. This will be on the screens for you. Peter writes this: "You yourselves, talking to the Christians, you're like living stones who are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priest." There's that word again that we just talked about: to be a holy, a set apart, a countercultural priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices, namely our own lives. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. That, there's that word again. A holy nation, a countercultural nation, a people for his, God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And I love that the Apostle Peter uses the picture of believers as stones. And so I want you to look on the screen. i got two pictures side by side. On the left, we have a single stone in the field. Now let me ask you a question. How good is that one single stone on the left? What can you do with it? Not much, right? Smash a pumpkin spice latte in the ground, maybe something like that. That's about it. But you look on the right, and you take a bunch of stones together, and you put them together, and you craft them where they're supposed to be, and you end up with something magnificent, spectacular, useful to the world around you. Listen, Christian, we were created to thrive in community. And whether you realize it or not, you need the church, and we need you. You need me, and I need you. That's the way we were created. We were not created to be lone stones in a field. We were created to be this stone temple built up into the image of Jesus to be salt and light to the world around us. And Peter goes, listen, you're being built into the spiritual house, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why is God doing all of this in you? Peter tells us right there. He says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Jesus to the world around you. Church, listen to me. We have a mission We've got a mission. And I don't know about you, but I feel like for far too long, for far too many of us in the American church context, we have been consumers in the church when we have been called to be contributors in the kingdom. And the time for that is over, church. Far too many of us have been consumers in the church when we've been designed to be contributors in the kingdom. And so I want to close with a challenge. I told you that we're going to end with a challenge, and so we are. I want to show you a graph on the screen that I think represents pretty well every church, every New Testament church. What you'll notice is that the center of any church is Jesus Christ. Now, let me, let me just say, um, if you're new here, I want you to know I'm the lead pastor here. I, I am not the head of this church. Our pastoral team is not the head of this church. Our elder team is not the head of this church. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. Let me say, if there's any church that doesn't have Jesus at the center, it's not a church, it's a cult, you should probably run away as fast as you can. Jesus is the center of every authentic, real church. And then the second ring that you see there is what we would term the, the core of the church. These are the folks, many of you, as I look out and, and see your faces, many of you are part of this core. You're not only all in with Jesus, you're all in with his bride. You're all in with the local church. So unless you're sick or on vacation, man, you're, you're here, you're worshiping together with us on Sunday morning, You're invested financially. You're involved in community group life. You're using your talents and gifts within the body of Christ, Ephesians chapter 4. And I would just say to you, if that's you, you're a part of the core. We got so many of you who are, and you've been here for a lot of you 5, 10, 15, 20 years even. I want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you. What you do matters in the kingdom of Jesus. I want you to know that. Thank you for being a part of the core. Now, listen, here's the cool thing. Most researchers will tell us that most churches, the core makes up about 20% of the church family. Now, I I would just estimate, I would guesstimate, we're probably close to double that. We're probably 40%. I praise God for that. And yet, I'm not satisfied with that. I would love to see us at 70, 80% of people who attend church and call New Life their church family to be a part of the core, just as committed to the the church, the bride of Jesus, as they are to Christ himself. Outside the core, you have the, the congregation. So maybe you're here, you're part of that group and, and you're committed to the church, you would consider this your church family and you're here pretty consistently and maybe you serve or maybe you go to a community group or maybe you're invested financially but you're not doing all of those things, right? And so at least at this point, you're not, you're not yet fully uh, committed to the bride of Christ but you're here, we're glad that you're here, I'm grateful that you're here and then on the outside, you've got the crowd. Some of you are probably a part of that particular category and these are people that just have a very loose association with the church, a very low level of commitment. So it's like, man, I'll, I'll come to church if I don't have anything else better to do, if the weather's not nice, if I can't go camping, if my kid doesn't have one of their 842 soccer games this weekend, then I'll, then I'll come, you know? And so maybe the CEOs would be in this group, the Christmas Easter only folks, right? They would be a part of, of the crowd. I can say that because they're not here. It's October 2nd, right? I, I won't say that in two months, but maybe, but listen, if you're a part of the crowd, I'm glad you're here. Thank God that you're here. I want to invite you to take a step in <laughs> towards Jesus before you leave. And that's a challenge for everybody. Just do an honest assessment and look at that chart of a New Testament style church and make an honest assessment of where you are. Are you in the core? Are you in the congregation? Are you in the crowd? Are you in the community? That's our mission field, right? People that are, are far from Jesus and it's our job to take the gospel to them. Where are you at? And the challenge is take one step in today. Take take one step in towards the local church, the bride of Jesus. If you're on the fringes, come on in, right? Don't don't be that lone stone in the field. You were created for community. If you're a part of the crowd, come on in. Pursue church membership. Check out a small group. Invest financially. Watch how God honors your uh, generosity and your faithfulness. If you're not serving, step up to the plate. Use your talents and gifts to build up the body of Jesus, Ephesians chapter four. In our kids ministry, our youth ministry, our coffee ministry, our mission we got a billion different ways you can plug in and serve and use your spiritual gifts here. And again, if you're a part of the core, I want you to know what you do matters. Thank you. Keep pressing into Jesus. Keep pursuing his kingdom as a centerpiece of our faith. Wherever you are, the challenge is, don't stay where you are. Take one step in. Now church, I want you to listen to me. For better or worse, we are the people of Jesus. In this city, in Asheville, in the 828, we are God's chosen vehicle to reach the world with the greatest news the world has ever known. And so I just want to invite, man, let's, let's grow together. Let's disappoint one another together. Let's love each other together. Let's irritate each other. Let's learn how to forgive each other. Let's learn to laugh together, cry together, live together. Let's be the church together. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. I want to finish with my favorite quote about the church from one of my favorite pastors, um, Charles Spurgeon. This is what he says in a sermon to his church about the church. Spurgeon says, give yourself, Christian, to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you almost feel glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church until I found one that was perfect, I would have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I'd found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I became a member of it. Still, as imperfect as it is, and it is imperfect, but I love this next line. As imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should, as speedily as possible, also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, that is right for everyone. And then the testimony for God will be lost to the world. As I've already said, the church is faulty, but that is no excuse for your not joining it if you are the Lord's. Nor need your own faults keep you back, for the church is not an institution for perfect people, praise God, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who though they are saved are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep and the home for Christ's family. Friend, let's give ourselves to the bride of Jesus for our good and his glory. Let's pray as the band comes. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful that when you pursued me as a stubborn 20-year-old college student far from you. That when I became a follower of yours, that you didn't leave me like a lone stone in the field by myself. You didn't just high-five me and say, good luck, kid. You gave me a family, a spiritual family of living stones. None of us perfect, all of us sinful all of us messed up, all of us falling down, but hopefully getting back up by the power of the Holy Spirit and running hard after you. God, I thank you specifically for giving me this church family, New Life Community Church. I've come to love these brothers and sisters. Thank you for surrounding this imperfect, messed up, flawed pastor with other imperfect, flawed brothers and sisters so that we could run this race together, not alone. God would you help us would you help us to love your bride the way that you love your bride in spite of all of her imperfections and idiosyncrasies and warts and ways that she messes up God would you help us to see her the church through your eyes beautiful holy set apart a priesthood a holy nation and would you help us to prioritize your bride realizing that we need one another we actually were created for one another that will never fully function in the way that you designed for us to function in this life until we're doing it together as brothers and sisters as an imperfect, at times messed up faith family God help us to love you, to obey your word to love your bride Thank you for sending us on mission together. Thank you that church is not just an hour event on Sunday morning. It's not just a building. We're we're being built into this supernatural family, this supernatural society of God's people sent to be salt and light in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our college campuses, in our high school campuses. Help us to be that faithfully, though imperfectly faithfully, increasingly day by day, as we follow hard after your son and our savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his strong name that we ask and we pray all these things. Amen. Church family, let's stand, Let's worship him.